If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to the New Testament, to the book of Philemon. And here in these Lord's Day afternoons, we have been in a short series through this shortest of Paul's letters, the little book of Philemon. And today we're going to be looking at one portion of this book, which is Philemon verses 15 through 19. Philemon verses 15 through 19. And so let me invite you as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's word. And I'm going to read from the epistle of Paul to uh, Philemon. It's just 25 verses in length, and we're going to look at verses 15 uh, through 19, wherein Paul writes, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldst receive him forever, not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join again in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, again, we stand before the open Bible, and we look, we are searching uh, for truth. We know that thy word is a lamp uh, to our feet and a light to our path. And so give us illumination so that we may find in this ancient letter truth that will help us in living for Christ today. We ask this in his name. Amen. And you may be seated. So we got this little letter. This little letter is often overlooked. It's not that commonly preached upon. It's a short letter, 25 verses, and it deals with a personal matter, a sensitive matter. Paul really writes this letter in order to encourage reconciliation between two men. One of those men was a guy named Onesimus. And he had been a servant, really a slave, in the household of a Christian man whose name was Philemon, who very likely was an elder in the church. Maybe it was the church in Colossae. And so Onesimus when he was an unbeliever and a servant in Philemon's house, had run away. That happened in the ancient world. Somehow, when he had run away, he had met Paul. And Paul had shared Christ with him. And Philemon, or Onesimus, had been converted. And now, Paul is sending Onesimus back as a Christian to Philemon, and he's trying to forge reconciliation. He's writing to Philemon and urging to Philemon to receive back Onesimus, not merely as a servant in his household, but as a brother in Christ. In this little letter, 
Paul uses all the weight of his apostolic office and all the torque of his rhetorical skills to attempt to soften the heart of Philemon towards this person who had been um, um, parted from him and toward whom he likely had some me measure of um, um, dislike for because of what had happened. As an apostle, Paul might, might well have commanded Philemon, but instead of commanding him, he tries to convince him by appealing to his sense of what would be the Christian thing to do. I titled the, 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 the last message, Doing the Right Thing for the Right Reason. And in, in verse 14, we had meditated especially on what Paul said, urging Philemon to do uh, what was right, not out of necessity, but willingly. And that's a real key to the Christian life. Doing the right thing, but doing it not out of guilt, not merely because this is what you're supposed to do, not because it's a duty, but because it's pleasing to God. Doing the right thing for the right reasons. In the passage we look at today, I want to suggest there's an echo. I'm not sure whether I could say it's, it was intentional on Paul's part or not, but there's an echo of a parable that Christ told, one of his best-known parables in Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to suggest that Paul comes through in this part of the letter we're going to be looking at as being like a Good Samaritan. And you know Christ's story, we'll look a little more at it later, about a man who fell among thieves, a wounded man who was left half dead by the side of the road, and a Samaritan came by, picked up that man, took him to an inn, left him there, and, and offered the innkeeper uh, to pay for all of his expenses, any expenses he would incur. And Paul comes off in this part of the letter as being like a good Samaritan uh, to Onesimus in particular. But let's turn now and look briefly at the part of the passage that we're meditating on. Paul begins with a kind of a hypothetical explanation, we might call it, of why God in his all-wise providence had allowed Onesimus to depart from Philemon's household as a runaway slave in the first place. And so look at verse 15. He says, For perhaps he, referring to Onesimus, the runaway slave, therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. And so it's interesting. Again, Paul is kind of looking at this situation. And he's telling Philemon, Let's see if we can look back on this and figure out if there isn't some kind of providential reason as to why God has allowed this thing to happen. And I call attention to that because this is what we do a lot as Christians, isn't it? We look back on our lives, we look back on our past experiences, and we ponder why God allowed those circumstances to take place, why things happened as they did, and we also reflect upon how God might have allowed those things to happen in a way that would turn out for our good or for the good of others. This is what Christians do. 
And that's what Paul is doing with Philemon. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. In the Proverbs, in Proverbs 16, 9, it says, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. And of course, many Christians have as one of their favorite verses of all time, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. He works all things together for our good. Paul wants Philemon to consider whether the painful parting of Onesimus had been permitted by the Lord in order to bring this man to faith. If Onesimus had not run away from Philemon's household, he wouldn't have met Paul. And Paul wouldn't have shared the gospel with him. And Onesimus wouldn't have been converted. And then also after Onesimus was converted, he apparently stayed around and helped Paul while he was in prison for preaching the gospel. And so Paul is asking Philemon to consider this. And uh, he's, he's, he's saying, listen, you should receive Onesimus back into your household and you shouldn't hold a grudge against him because of what he's done, particularly because he's, he's going to seek your forgiveness and seek reconciliation with you. You're not going to just get him back into your household as a servant for a few fleeting moments in this life. But he says in verse 15, perhaps God has allowed this, that thou shouldest receive him forever. What did he mean by that? That if he comes back as a Christian brother, you're going to have a relationship with him in heaven. He's going to be your brother in heaven. This, this actually is kind of interesting to think about. Verse 15 is one of the key proof texts we have in the Bible for the notion that our relationships with Christian brothers and sisters will continue in the age that is to come. We will know brothers and sisters in heaven. We will have friendships that will continue in heaven. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to ponder. Christ told the Sadducees that, that at the resurrection we neither marry nor are given in marriage. The institution of marriage is, will not continue in heaven. But friendships will continue. The friendships between husbands and wives, between Christian brothers and sisters. You'll receive, maybe God has allowed this so you'll receive him back, not just temporarily, he might be your servant again, but that you might have a relationship with him as a Christian brother forever. Um, how embarrassed, how embarrassed we should be if we allow petty, temporary disagreements in this life, especially with Christian brothers and sisters, to bring disharmony into the relationships we have now, given that we will be shared residents living in harmony in glory for eternity. So every time we have a, a disagreement with one another as Christian brothers and sisters, let's remember um, we're going to live in harmony in heaven forever. And so let's not get waylaid by a, a, a small, slight disagreement we may have now. In verse 16, Paul reminds Philemon that he will or should be receiving Onesimus not merely as a servant, and he uses the word doulos, 
which in Greek means slave. I don't want to dress it up. It doesn't mean simply like a paid servant. It means an enslaved person. He urges them he should receive him, not merely as a servant, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Look at verse 16. Not now, talking about receiving Onesimus, as a servant, doulos, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You'll notice that in, in the second part of verse 16, Paul is, is urging this especially upon Philemon, uh, reminding him that, he, that, that Paul had a special bond with Onesimus. Paul had a, a, such a bond with Onesimus that he could say uh, that he was much more unto thee, a brother, beloved, and he says, especially to me, especially to me. And uh, this calls to mind the fact, as Paul had already mentioned, that Onesimus was like a spiritual son to him. Look at verse 10. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, that Onesimus had become a Christian while Paul had been in prison. And not only that, while Paul was in prison, that Onesimus had taken care of his needs. Look at verse 13. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Now I want to pause for a moment here and I want to address the issue of the early Christian view of slavery. Because you might be reading this in 2023 and you might think, wait a second, why didn't Paul just say, receive Onesimus back and free him? But instead he says you, you can receive him as a servant, but as more than a servant, as a beloved brother. The implication is that Paul expected Onesimus would return to his same station as a servant in Philemon's household, but he would also have uh, the status of being a Christian brother as well as being a servant. And that might seem incongruent with what we think Christianity is supposed to be about. And so let's, let's reflect on that for just a moment. One thing we need to remember is that slavery was a universal institution in the ancient world. Every culture of that time practiced slavery and people were often enslaved through war they would they would defeat a people and enslave part of their population it's it's estimated that in the city of ancient rome for example that 50 percent or more of the people who lived within rome were enslaved persons and so it was taken for granted that this was a part of society what was unique among christians and christianity as a movement was the fact that they welcomed into their churches, into their assemblies, both slaves and masters. And there are passages in Paul's writings that are known as household codes. Let's look at one of those briefly in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 5 and 6, there's a household code, and Paul's talking to a church, and he addresses wives and husbands. He says, wives... Be submitted to your husbands as to the Lord. Then he says, husbands, love your wives. Now in the first century world, no one would have been shocked if Paul had said, wives, submit to your husbands. What they would have found shocking was Paul said, husbands, love your wives. And then in, in Ephesians 5, he also gave, gives instructions to children and parents. 
In Ephesians 6, verse 1, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. That would have shocked no one in the first century world. They thought children ought to obey parents. The father was the pater familias. He was the head of the household. You should listen to what he says. What they would have been shocked by was the fact there were instructions to fathers not to embitter their children. So in Ephesians 6, 4, it says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And you'll notice now in Ephesians 6, 5, there's an instruction to Christian servants, douloi, slaves. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. So there's an exhortation to Christian servants who serve their masters as though they were serving Christ. No one in the ancient world would have bothered by that at all. The philosophers often wrote about how servants ought to obey their masters. What would have been shocking and scandalous was the fact that Paul also addressed masters. And so he said in Ephesians 6, 9, and ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. You masters, remember, you have a master in heaven. Don't be forbearing. Treat those who are your servants, in some contexts it would have been like employees, with forbearance and kindness. That's what would have been shocking to people in the first century uh, world. And we see a very similar household code if you want to compare another passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. So the odd thing about Christianity was that in this culture that had slaves and masters and had usually divisions, men and women didn't normally meet together, children and parents didn't normally meet together, servants and masters certainly didn't meet together, and then you get this, this, these people who are Christians, and they bring all these types of people together in one place, and in addition to that, you have people like Paul saying things like he declares in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28, wherein he said this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul said you're all spiritual equals, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're bond, enslaved, or free, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. And, and so Paul was saying your external status in this world doesn't matter. You have worth and standing before God, whoever you are. And in fact, Paul said, acknowledging that Christians are a minority, they don't have any political power, they can't overthrow the institution of slavery. But he says, he says in the church, you're all spiritually equal. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, he even urged people to be content with the status that they have, realizing that your worth as a person doesn't come from your status within the world. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 20 and following, where Paul said, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be free, use it rather. Did you become a Christian while you were a slave? Don't worry about it. If you can become a free man, okay, gain that status. 
But whether you're enslaved or free in God's sight doesn't matter. That's what Paul was saying. He continues to say in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 7, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also, he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. And then he says, Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. And see, he was talking to churches where they actually had people who were slaves, who had probably stood on the auction block and been bought and sold. And he says, listen, whatever your external status is, you've been bought, but you've been bought by the blood of Christ. And whatever your external status is, now you're a free man in Christ. So the words that Paul says to Philemon have to be understood in that context. No, this is not a, Philemon's not a socially radical letter. He doesn't say go back and, and you must, Philemon, release Onesimus. But he does tell Philemon, you're, you're having, he's coming back to you not merely as a servant, but he's coming back now as a beloved brother. Christianity had within it the seed that would do away with slavery in lands where Christianity would spread and the Bible would be preached and taught and where the Christian worldview would exercise its influence. There are actually two places in the New Testament that I think show better than any place what the seed of Christianity would do and how it eventually, when Christians when Christianity expanded and it had influence over nations and, and cultures, how it would change the world, especially with regard to slavery, even though we don't see it being brought to an end in the book of Philemon. Those two passages are, first of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. And in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul is giving what some would call a vice list, a list of sins, a list of sinful behaviors. And he's talking about these kinds of people are not in the kingdom of God. And, and here's part of the list in 1 Timothy 1.10. He says, For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. He gives a list of sinful things. And the thing that what stands out for our conversation about Philemon is his listing of men-stealers, for men-stealers, because this was a practice of slave traders. They would often literally steal people, capture people, and sell them into slavery, and Paul lists that in 1 Timothy 1.10 as a sinful behavior. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 13, John the Apostle, describes the destruction of Babylon the Great, which may have been a, a symbol for Rome and the Roman Empire. And he describes how that city would be destroyed and the smoke of it would rise forever. And he describes it as, as, a, as a, a city that, that was a great trading town. And maybe he's talking about Babylon. Maybe he's talking about Rome. Maybe he's talking about what Augustine will call the city of man. Maybe he's talking about every secular city that sets itself against the cause of God. 
And he talks about how all they have are dollar signs in their eyes. All they care about is making money and merchandising and materialism. And he says, there's going to come a day where all this is going to just collapse in upon itself. And he lists the people who lived merely for trade. And in Revelation 18, 13, he, he lists those who trafficked in cinnamon and odors and ointments. Maybe, maybe people who had essential oils they were selling. I don't know. And frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots. And it's the last two. And slaves and souls of men. Literally, it reads, and bodies and souls of men. So those would be just two places, 1 Timothy 1 and Revelation 18, 13, where we can say we have the seeds of what is in Christianity that will eventually do away with slavery. But at the time Philam has been written, there are probably less than a thousand Christians in the world, in this part of the world where Paul is writing, in Asia Minor. Not that many Christians in that part of the world. Maybe a few thousand at the most. They were, they were a distinct minority. They didn't have political power. They didn't have political control. They couldn't do away with the institution of slavery. But in the midst of it, he was saying, in your Christian assemblies, welcome men and women, children and fathers, slaves and masters. And in the circumstances of these times, treat one another and esteem one another, not according to your outward status, but according to your spiritual status in Christ. Christianity, again, has a seed in it of the worth of human beings that will do away with slavery wherever Christianity has influence. Think about Christian men like William Wilberforce in England who would end the transatlantic slave trade in the British Empire. Think about the abolitionists who preached against slavery in the United States. But at this point, the institution persisted among Christians even as Christian principles were undermining it. Paul heightens his rhetoric, going back to our passage in verse 17, as he says to Philemon, if thou count me therefore a partner, and the Greek word there is a koinonos, a partner in koinonia, a, a, a partner in fellowship. If you count me therefore a partner, receive him, Onesimus, as myself. And of course, um, Paul's using his rhetoric here because obviously Philemon was his friend and Paul was an apostle. Surely he would receive Paul the apostle. And Paul says, if you're going to receive me, receive Onesimus, who's a slave, but a Christian brother. Receive him the way you would receive me. In some ways, Paul is really taking the, the words of Christ and the way of Christ because Christ often said when he sent out his apostles, he says, men receive you, they are receiving me. In Matthew 10, 40, he said to the apostles when he sent them out, he that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receives him that sent me. Or think about it in Matthew 25 when Christ said, Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. And see, Christ says, whatever you, do, whatever you do to my apostles, you're doing to me. Now Paul takes that and says, whatever you do to Onesimus, you're doing to me, an apostle. Receive even Onesimus as you would me, an apostle. 
And then he continues and he says in verse 18, if he hath wronged thee, if Onesimus has wronged you or owes you aught, I don't know, maybe Onesimus stole some things from the household before he left. And maybe by the time he ran into Paul, he had spent all of that, all of that money. Maybe he had taken money or expensive items. But Paul says, if he wronged you or if he owes you anything, put that on mine account. In other words, I will, I will take his debt and I will make good for any debt that he has. Paul takes personal responsibility for him. And this is where I hear that an echo, whether intentional or not, of what I suggested to you earlier. I hear an echo of Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Many of you know the story very well. Christ in the parable of the Good Samaritan tells about a man who was traveling and he fell among thieves and was left by the side of the road as dead. And two religious men came by, a priest and a Levite, but they passed by on the other side and they didn't stop and help him. But last of all, there came a Samaritan. The Jews hated Samaritans. But the Samaritan stopped and he helped the man. This is what we read in Luke 10, verses 33 and following. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come, I will repay thee. And then Christ, after he told the parable, said, Which of the three, the priest, the Levite, or the good Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? And the answer that came back was, He that showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said, Go and do thou likewise. I've heard an interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan that suggests that Christ is like the Good Samaritan in that he picks us up when we were left for dead along the roadside. But here, I think it is Paul following in Christ's footsteps who is a model neighbor to a man in need. Put that on my account. He picked up Onesimus out of a spiritual gutter when he was spiritually dead and nursed him to spiritual life. And now he says, I'm sending him back and whatever debt he has to you, I will pay it. You're like the innkeeper, I'll pay it. I'll pay it myself. I take personal responsibility for him. And so Paul continues, look at verse 19. He says, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Often in Paul's letters, I think it was because he, he didn't have good eyesight. He was nearly blind by the end of his life, I think. And he often would have a secretary, a scribe, write down the letters. He would dictate them. But often at the end of the letter, he takes the pen into his own hand. And if you read his letters, you'll see sometimes at the end, he'll make reference to the fact that he's writing the last little bit. Like in Galatians 6.11, the end of the letter to the Galatians, he says, See how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. He wrote in big letters because he couldn't see very well. He needed a large print uh, version of Galatians. Right, right, big letters at the end. And here, similarly, he takes the pen 
to say, I want you to make sure the scribe isn't writing this, I'm writing this. I, Paul, the aged apostle, am writing, take care of this young man. He is a slave, he's a servant, he's beholding to you. You have power over him, but treat him as a brother and I will stand good for him. I will pay his debt. If he can't pay it, I will pay for him. And so we see the Apostle Paul again using all the power of his rhetoric. And look, at, look what he says at the end of verse 19. He says, Albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. That's kind of interesting. He says, I'm not even going to mention the fact, even though he's mentioning it. I, I, you know, aside from all this, I don't even want to mention the fact that you owe me your life. In other words, I was a good Samaritan to you. Maybe you weren't a slave. Maybe you were a wealthy master. But spiritually speaking, you were a beggar. You didn't know Christ. You didn't know your right hand from your left. And I shared the gospel with you. I'm not even going to mention that. That you owe me, but I'll mention it. That you owe me your life. Now, couldn't the least you could do is be kind to this man that I'm sending back to you? Isn't that the least that you could do for such a one as this? Well, Paul is offering us in this little letter a Christ-like model of behavior. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And here's a question we might ponder as we come to the end of our passage. For whom might I be a good Samaritan? For whom might I work as an agent of reconciliation and help? What person left for dead by life in the gutter might I, might I come by and pick up and share the gospel with and help to make reconciliation in areas of his life that have been broken? For whom can I say, put that on my account? I will repay it. For whom might we do that? Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for thy word. We thank you for this little overlooked epistle. Uh, for here we see the heart of a great Christian hero, Paul, but one who could say that he was nothing but the chief of sinners and would point us every time not to himself but to Christ. Help us to be a good Samaritan. Help us to uh, be, be open-hearted, uh, to be kind with, with those who have failed and to, and to help uh, them to be reconciled uh, to one another. Uh, to, 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 to the church, to the faith, to brothers and sisters, and help us to be agents of peace and reconciliation in our own lives, to start with our own selves, start, start with our own household, and then as you allow opportunities for us to be 
such agents among others. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.